0: ID, the future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design.
1: For years, leading scientists and science popularizers have insisted that humans are nothing special in the cosmic scheme of things. But what does the scientific evidence actually show? Hello, I'm Eric Anderson, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Denton to talk about his brand new book, The Miracle of Man. Denton is a senior fellow with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, he holds an MD from Bristol University and a PhD in biochemistry from King's College in London. His previous books include Evolution, A Theory and Crisis, Nature's Destiny, and The Miracle of the Cell. He has published in Nature, Nature Genetics, Biosystems, Human Genetics, and Biology and Philosophy. It's great to have you on the show again, Mike. Great to be here, Eric. Thanks. So first of all, congratulations on your latest book, The Miracle of Man, Listeners will be familiar with your series of monograph books over the past couple of years, the Privileged Species Series. Tell us about this new book, Mike, and how it fits into what you've been working on for the past several years.
0: Well, the Privileged Species Series that you mentioned, and this book as well, which is the, the, the final one in the series, it's all about what possible beings can exist in the universe given the properties of the carbon atoms and given the general laws of nature. What complex types of being can exist? And my argument is a purely secular argument that if you look at the properties of the atoms and you look at the general laws of nature, the only complex beings that can exist are beings very similar to ourselves. That is, beings that could sort of be intelligent beings, could do science, could understand the universe and so forth those beings would have to be very like us, given the laws of nature and given the properties of the atom. For instance, if you want to build complex chemical systems roughly comparable with ourselves, you've got to really build them out of the carbon atom. And if you want to get a lot of energy for those systems or to build highly advanced and complex beings like ourselves, you've got to use oxygen and you've got to use oxidations to get the energy. So basically, the core themes of the previous monographs and this one, is essentially a purely secular theme. And that basically, given the laws of nature, um, throughout the universe, complex advanced forms of being would have to be very like ourselves. And of course, this um, purely secular sort of argument, based on the scientific evidence, has of course religious implications. Because okay. the fine tuning necessary, it's so fine, it's
1: so carefully adjusted, that it does suggest that, in fact, an intelligent agent is behind it. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. And I like how you distinguish between the evidence and starting with the evidence versus what the implications are. I think that's consistent with some of the other areas of evidence that we tend to look at. I think a lot of listeners, of course, will be familiar with Steve Meyer's focus on information and DNA, or Mike Behe's focus on intricate molecular machines that he discussed in his first book, and the evidence that you're presenting seems like it's almost in some ways a little more prior to or fundamental in the sense that the fitness of nature has to precede those things. Is that right? That's right, yes. I mean, the, the it's an
0: environmental fitness, which, as it were is tailored for the existence of complex biological adaptations, if you want. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a prior fitness,
1: which allows the beings like us to be in the universe itself, yeah. So that's one right. way of doing it, yeah. Good, good. So I know you've received a lot of great endorsements for the book. I want to just highlight one as we start here. David Galloway, former president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow, said, While there is a general awareness of the fine-tuning of the various laws and constants of physics rendering our planetary home particularly well-suited for intelligent life, Michael Denton describes an additional astonishing array of qualities demonstrating prior fitness for complex, carbon-based, high-energy, metabolically efficient life that takes the fine-tuning in a different direction and to an exceptional degree. Denton describes not just amazing and specific adaptations— but the surprising prior fitness of basic physics and chemistry, a peculiar challenge to any naturalistic explanation and reminiscent of remarkable foresight. Teleology is evident everywhere you look. I love that quote and that endorsement from Galloway. And I think it really uh, describes what you're talking about here, that there's a type of teleology from the evidence. You're not talking causation in this book, how it came about, but you're just describing the evidence that exists, how things are. Yeah, that's right but certainly as i say
0: as I, as i said the degree of fine tuning to give the to give the universe that special unique fitness for our being is really very remarkable and that's what of course david galloway is saying here the actual fine tuning necessary for that unique fitness for our being is is really extraordinary in some cases very extraordinary yes and yep. it, it's screaming out. It's screaming out
1: intelligent agency and in design. Right. Yeah. There, there are some implications as you mentioned to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to start at the end, so to speak, and let you then come back and build your case. In the concluding chapter of the book, you write, "The human person as revealed by modern science is no contingent assemblage of elements, an irrelevant afterthought of cosmic evolution." So, Mike, set the stage for us here a little bit. What is this idea of a contingent? assemblage of elements that's been popular in modern scientific thought.
0: Well, it's basically the idea that in fact, you can have a vast array of different types of complex being like ourselves. and there's no specific unique fitness for any one of them. Uh, and so that in fact, essentially, according to the sort of scientific conventions over most of the last few centuries is, well, there's a vast number of other possibilities that could exist and we are just one contingent assemblage compared with all the other ones. But in fact, basically, as I think the book shows, we are no contingent assemblage of elements because in fact, first of all, there's a unique fitness for our being. We are an assemblage of elements which was built into the natural order from the beginning. That's
1: not a contingent assemblage. It was a teleological assemblage, if you want. Yeah, and I think Stephen Jay Gould describing us said that we're the mere embodiment of contingency we're we're but a tiny twig on an improbable yeah, branch yeah. of a contingent limb of a fortunate tree <laughs> so he kind of he's kind of underscored the at least the evolutionary the traditional darwinian evolutionary perspective that
0: yeah i mean you know, chance was, chance
1: uh, and necessity we're just here because of a contingent uh, yeah, accident and- really. And of course, basically, what the evidence that I'm looking at
0: in the book shows that, in fact, there is essentially a sort of a long before we came, there was a primal blueprint um which sort of specified the environmental conditions precisely necessary for our being so when you when you when you find a as it were, a blueprint in nature long before the appearance of something, mm-hmm. that means it's not contingent <laughs> there's nothing contingent.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I like that. I like the way you described that, where you've got a blueprint before the actual instantiation yeah. of what's coming about. Yeah. That's great. That's, yeah. So you go on in, in your conclusion there to argue that humans are not, in fact, just a contingent assemblage of elements or, or an irrelevant afterthought of cosmic evolution. But you go on to state, rather, our destiny was inscribed in the light of stars and the properties of atoms since the beginning. Now we know that all nature sings the song of man. Our seeming exile from nature is over. We now know what the medieval scholars only believed, that the underlying rationality of nature is indeed manifest in human flesh. And I'd like to delve into the scientific evidence, of course, in a little more detail. But before we do that, tell us about this medieval idea that nature was somehow set up or manifest uh, for humans, or manifest in humans. What was this medieval concept that existed?
0: Well, the, the, I mean, the medieval concept in in the Christian West, of course, came basically from the idea that you know man is in the image of God, and that the the whole creation was focused on the on the great drama of redemption. Basically, man was an absolutely critical and central part of the whole creation itself, and that's I think what the medieval scholars believed. And they actually believed in, and it's really rather remarkable. They believed that there was correspondences between human biology and the cosmos. <laughs> it's it's quite extraordinary. And uh, there were, of course, in those days, also astrological correspondences, yeah. um, and so forth. And so that the various things that were going on on the earth and in human biology reflected the stars. You know, for instance, mm. everybody believed in astrology. And the thought that the destiny of people was written in the stars and things like this. So there was a fantastically sort of um, intimate connection between mankind and human biology and human destiny and the cosmos, right? And as I say, that that that, that really came not from any, any scientific evidence at all. <laughs> they, they, they were brilliant philosophers and logicians, but they didn't have any scientific knowledge. And so that, that idea that man was of great significance... In the cosmic order was coming from scripture. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing is what they intuited from the scriptural um, evidence has been validated by modern science. And that's, what, that's one of the messages of the book really. The centrality of man that was presumed by them from their reading of scripture uh, has now
1: been sort of validated by modern science. Yeah, um, not 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 the astrology or the uh, or the or the correspondence between biology and the stars. Uh, you don't mean that, but you mean in terms yeah. of this, the That's centrality right. of the human. Yeah, in other words, in other words, our, our, our destiny it was written in the laws of
0: nature. <laughs> no astrology has not been validated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's amazing, of course. Is that you can, there's still a astrology. Seek in most. Papers in the Western world, anyway. I haven't read. You know, <laughs> you can you can you can check the Star. You know, you're, you know uh, yeah. How, there you go. Exactly. from the Star. Yeah. But yeah. but certainly, but the, the the core idea of 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 the, of the medieval sort of Christian cosmology, man is central and very significant, and reflects in his being the greater cosmos, the greater macrocosm around him, has been, I think, entirely validated
1: by modern science. Yeah. Which is very, this- very, remarkable. Very remarkable. I mean, it's... Right. Um, yeah. 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 So, so how did this idea of the centrality of human beings in, in the great cosmic scheme of things, how did this idea start to fall out of favor?
0: Well, first of all, the medievalists were wrong about one thing. They thought the Earth was the center of the, of the universe in a spatial sense. Everything revolved around the Earth. I mean, obviously, if you look up in the sky, the sun goes around the Earth. <laughs> mm-hmm. So everything revolved around the Earth. The whole universe revolved around the Earth, and then Copernicus came along, and subsequent discoveries, of course, showed that well, the Earth is certainly not in the centre of things. It's just one of a vast. Well, now we know it seems it's it's one of a ten to the twenty-two planets probably in the in the observable universe. So from Copernicus on, the, the the spatial centrality of the Earth basically was was shown to be completely completely false. So that that particular sort of what the medieval people would take as evidence of our centrality, that, that had to go after Copernicus. But then as you look at the development of science subsequent to Copernicus, the development of physics and chemistry, right until the beginnings of organic chemistry in the 19th century, there was nothing in the scientific um, discoveries over those centuries which did anything to validate the medieval position. So it was sort of downhill from Copernicus on, and I would argue until uh, the discoveries of chemistry in the in the nineteenth century, which started to point to something significant, that the carbon atom had special properties um which were exactly what you need for building complex chemical systems. and then from then, we found out the significance of carbon dioxide, we learned about human respiration and so forth like that, and we found more and more instances where nature seems to be arranged for beings of our biology. But from from, Fantaeus right away down to Darwin, really, um, Mm -hmm. everything downhill. I mean, there was no evidence that we occupied anything like a special position in the universe or that human biology was anything special. There could have been a vast array of alternative types of being. Now we know there's not a vast array. There's probably almost certainly only one type of being, and that is a carbon-based form of life. Um, very like ourselves,
1: yeah. And talk about the biology a little bit. I think you also mentioned at the time of, near the time of Copernicus, Andreas Vesalius, who's an uh, anatomist yeah. from Italy.
0: Yeah, well, of course, um, if you look at the, the first depictions, accurate depictions of human anatomy in the medical texts, like the famous Andreas Vesalius' Fabrica, um, and then you look at the pictures of the, of the stars, there's the beautiful circular, in, in Copernicus, there's the circular orbits of the planets going around the sun. And then there's this extraordinary sort of pictures of, of the human circulatory system and respiratory system in De Fabrica and the other early medical texts and um, post Renaissance medical texts. And there's no connection. No. The, the assumption of astrology, the assumption of the medieval cosmologists and so forth, medieval Christians, there's no connection between biology and cosmology, and you can see it. It's dramatically that connection is dramatically absent when you look at Copernicus's De Revolutionibus and you look at Fabrica. There's no connection between biology and physics, between between human biology and the cosmos, and and that disconnect persisted all the way really down until the until the time of Darwin. Ironically, when Darwin was doing Origin of Species the first discoveries were coming to light, which were going to um, question the sort of the sort of the contingent
1: paradigm. Yeah, but that that wouldn't take hold until, well, it's still not taking hold. We're trying to make it take hold. But, yeah, but, but Dar- Darwin's contingency matters. Uh, contingency is everything view really came, you know, full full strength there for, well, yeah. the centrist. That, that, right? that would be the epitome of this whole,
0: of the downhill from, you know, the... Christian medieval view. But as I say, it, when you say it hasn't taken hold, yes, that's correct. However, I think it's surprising. When NASA look for life outside the Earth, they, they follow the water.
1: Yep, yep.
0: <laughs> and basically, even Carl Sagan said he was a carbon chauvinist, right? <laughs> so basically, when you say it hasn't taken hold, when you practically want to look for life on another planet or moon in our solar system or now with the exoplanets, you are looking for oxygen, you're looking for carbon, and you're looking for water.
1: Yeah. You've got to take it seriously when you're actually looking for something rather than... If you
0: want um, to get a grant from the US government, you have to... uh... Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Seriously, the only form of life now accepted by the secular community is carbon-based life as it exists on Earth and I would, I would argue that advanced forms of life are the only form that science supports are beings very like ourselves. And I would, I would argue that case in any, before any audience anywhere on Earth. And the only way, the only way you, can, you can sort of um, attack that argument, the only smoking gun you have, would be to show that there are alternatives to the carbon atom, that you can build complex things out of phosphorus mm-hmm. or boron or something else. Or you can, within carbon-based life forms, you can show that well, you don't need oxidations. You've got you we can build a very complicated, advanced form of life without oxidations. But there's no papers like this in print. <laughs> Nothing exists. So NASA follow the water, they follow the carbon, and <laughs> they look for oxygen. Oxygen on an exoplanet could be a sign of advanced life, of course, uh, and photosynthesis. So anyway, anyway, basically, yeah, I think that in fact. It's ironic that Darwin wrote The Origin of Species in the middle of the 19th century when the first of all this evidence was coming to light.
1: So let's dive in and look at some of the evidence that's come to light. Tell us about the human cardiovascular and respiratory systems and our need for metabolic energy.
0: Yeah, well, these two remarkable systems, they require an extraordinary degree of fitness in nature. Uh, first of all, there's the fitness for photosynthesis, which itself is very remarkable. There's the fitness of water, to serve the medium of the cardiovascular system and there's the fitness of the transitional metal atoms for handling oxygen in the body for transporting it in hemoglobin and then for reducing it in the mitochondria which is the first step towards uh, releasing its energies so basically to have a cardiovascular system to have a respiratory systems to have those two adaptations working as they do in the human body You have this vast prior fitness in nature for photosynthesis, which involves the light of the sun, involves the transparency of the atmosphere Mm -hmm. to visual light, and then you need the fitness of water to serve as a medium of the cardiovascular system, and you need the transitional metal atoms to carry the oxygen from the lungs to the tissues, and you need the transitional metal atom, the properties of those atoms, in the reduction
1: of oxygen in the mitochondria to generate your energy. Right. And for a large multicellular organism such as ourselves, you know, if you're going to have a cardiovascular system, a respiratory system to get this oxygen where it needs to go, to get the nutrients where they need to go, you're going to have to have something that's essentially similar to this, right? I mean, you can't get away from having... Oh, no, yes. You you can derive the respiratory
0: system and the cardiovascular system from first principles. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you can derive the adaptations by first principles and you can show that you need the primal environmental fitness to allow those adaptations to
1: be realized. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate you being here. I'd love to have you back again to start diving into these aspects in a little more detail. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, that'll be fine. Yeah. Thank you for joining us at ID the Future. To learn more about the stunning fitness of nature for beings such as ourselves, get your copy of The Miracle of Man today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other book outlets. Join us again soon as we continue to explore the remarkable evidence for design in nature. And as always, consider sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.